Hello and welcome to The Bunker Global with me, Chris Jones. In August 2021, the Taliban retook the power it had lost in Afghanistan and succeeded in setting up a government of sorts. Since that moment, a lot has changed, especially for women. Banned from work, banned from universities, even banned from national parks. Life in Afghanistan for women under the Taliban has fast become a prison. New leader Habitullah Akhunzada released a message not long ago in which he said, the status of women as a free and dignified human being has been restored. I'm joined now by someone who knows that to be a lie and has experienced the oppression women face in Afghanistan and has fought against it at great length, irrespective of her own safety. Pashtana Durrani is an educator and the founder of Learn Afghan, an organization that does many things, including helping to give Afghan girls and women the education they deserve. Uh, Pashtana, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Excellent. Um, I want to start off by giving a bit more background on this from, from, from your perspective, because you, you were in Afghanistan when the Taliban retook control. What do you remember from that time? I think uh, many people forget the fact that uh, Kandahar was under siege for three yeah. months before it was taken over and Kabul fell in one day. So mm. people tend to be like, oh, August 15 was the day everything happened. But for us, the whole summer was horrifying because people were coming in from all these districts that were being bombed and the Taliban were capturing it and actually assassinating people who were working with the military or the police. And people were ending up in Ainomena or like the main city of Kandahar. And you could see that we had become a refugee nation in our own country. Um, people were being murdered. I remember the last four weeks of that siege was me getting calls from uh, all my relatives. Oh, this person died today. He was murdered. His body is still not found. Um, his head was found. So I, I think um, sometimes I, I would want to remember those people because it doesn't do them justice that they were murdered for something that was so meaningless yeah and and um specifically for women what has life been like since i know you say that and this is this has been going on for a long time now especially in in certain areas of afghanistan but uh, broadly since 2021 what's life been like for women in afghanistan it's like I, I tell people and all, again and again, I'm like, it's like when you wake up in your own countries, it doesn't matter what country you're from. Um, people tend to think when it comes to Afghanistan, so it's a conflict zone, it, people might be used to it. But yes. it's, it's very much like if you wake up in the US today, you have all the rights you have. Tomorrow, you're not allowed to leave your house, not go to school, not uh, study, not be in any political representative space. And... Um, a group of terrorists take that space, people who murdered your family members, people who shut down your schools, bombed your schools, people who targeted NGOs and nonprofits. And all of a sudden, you go from being part of that country to being shunned in your own country. So I think it's the, that's the sort of analogy I would like to give. It's because Afghanistan has been a war zone. People tend to forget like, oh, we still had a constitution. Yes, there was corruption. Yes, there were people who were bad. Yes, there were politicians who were doing all of those worst stuff. But then at the same time, constitutionally, we have the right to go to school. Like, no, we don't even have a constitution. We have a bunch of terrorists who are running the country. So there's this sort of understanding that you have to have when it comes to Afghanistan. Life has changed, but life has been upside down, I think, for Afghan women, especially young Afghan women who didn't grow up in during the Taliban regime. For them, 
all of a sudden, now they're 21, 22, and they're not allowed to finish their last semester of med school or go to public school or talk to a friend, go to a cafe or breathe the fresh air in a park, you know? Yeah, I, I listed in the, in, in the intro just three of the bans that have been brought in place for women in Afghanistan. And they just seem, for someone in my country, just impossibly unfair and endless. Um, do you think you could explain, just to simplify it for us, what kind of education that women in Afghanistan are allowed access to? And then also, what is the Taliban's reasoning for not allowing certain levels of education for women? First of all, let's talk about what is allowed right now for yeah. Afghan women to be allowed as uh, a person who reproduces. I think that's the main activity that is seen right now. Um, the education minister said that openly, that education is a Western tool. We don't want to do it in Afghanistan. Then what sort of education is allowed I wouldn't even say even religious education to some extent is not allowed. So when people are like, oh, no, but women go to madrasas. No, if you hit puberty or if you start menstruating, then you are not going to uh, madrasa either. So you have to understand right now the level of education when it comes to access legally is zero. It's not. So you cannot go to public school only to a certain extent if you're a young girl between the age of like zero to 10. So you can go to until grade three and then you're not allowed to be in that public vicinity or space and your government or regime doesn't provide for any of the facilities to access that. Post that, if you're in high school, if you were in high school, if you're in secondary, elementary, graduate, postgraduate, any sort of those uh, circumstances, you're supposed to sit at home and wait for the regime to change or change their mind. Um, so that's the sort of education that we are looking at. And at the same time, there is not even, because there are people who are doing PhDs in religious studies, women, they're not allowed to go to those spaces either to do it. So right now, that is a very restricted uh, sort of lifestyle that we are dealing with. And then when it comes to why are the Taliban not allowing it? I mean, we cannot expect people who bombed schools for the past two decades. Mm. We cannot expect from people who came um, with the propaganda, oh, um, schools are created by infidels, funded by infidels, and they are going to turn uh, the country into a bad or dishonored uh, space. We cannot expect them to open schools. Their own people are going to, uh, like, you know, desert them. So I think for us, we have to understand they're caught between this, oh, yes, I am ruling the country, so I might want something progressive, which they don't, by the way. Um, but then again, uh, on the other hand, oh, if I do this, people are going to leave me because the propaganda I did for the past two decades, I will justify burning schools down. How can I just let it be open now, you know? Um, and last but not the least, ideologically, they don't believe in women's rights or educational rights or girls' rights. So it would challenge them, you know? Um, now, coming more to a practical terms like, oh, maybe uh, certain groups want education. Certain groups might want education only as a project that is funded by the foreigners or other countries so that they can get a commission out of it or money out of it. Only then they might allow it well, because they have been to Kabul now. They have seen the SUVs. They have seen Wazir Akbar Khan. They have seen all this lavish lifestyle, you know, so they want it to continue. But I personally would think, uh, you know how leaders are always elected on these models of free healthcare or like education and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, for them, they came into power by justifying the fact that burning schools is okay. 
girls should be at home, women should be at home, there is no space for them, and we don't accept them. So it would be very hard for them to logically accept it or promote it or make it part of their policies. I think I saw a stat that said that around about 96% of all women in Afghanistan right now are suffering from mental stress, from from severe mental illness because of what the Taliban has put in place, not just on, on schools, but in society as well. So from what you've said, is it fair to say that it feels like a lot of women in Afghanistan feel like their future, but also their present has been stolen from them? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was stolen by corrupt politicians, um, the West in general, people who lobbied for them, for the journalists, for the female journalists who went to Doha, covered these Taliban, made them humans, were fascinated by the fact that the Taliban would talk to a woman in skirt while her legs were showing. Um, mm. It's all of them stealing the future of Afghan women. Right now, Afghan women are fighting against an extreme form of uh, religious extremism that is put in place. By the way, they're also the only people who are fighting for uh, the, like, you know, religious justice because Islam doesn't say that. Our culture doesn't see it. So for us, it's like we're fighting for what the religion says or what our culture has taught us. These are the people who are foreign with their concepts, you know. Um, but then at the same time, yeah, yeah, the future was stolen. Their present is stolen. And they are the victims of political agenda in which they didn't have a part, you know. What would a 14-year-old has to do with something that the Taliban had to do with, you know. But they are the victims. They are the first victims, you know. Uh, so we, and here's the funny thing. The Taliban do welcome the corrupt politicians back into the country. They receive them on red carpets. They're welcoming them in private jets and everything. But that 14-year-old girl in random mm, district of Afghanistan is uh, someone the Taliban are choosing to be at war with right now. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Not having you know, essentially half of the population in education, what does that mean and wider society in terms of, of, of jobs? Surely, you know, the economy, uh, everything will suffer, surely. I mean, in pragmatic terms, if you're looking at Afghanistan right now, Afghanistan is going to have a setback, is having a setback. You don't have young girls graduating from... Uh, and I don't... I, I, see, I hate the fact that I have to justify their education yeah. into medical school that, oh, if they, if they get graduated, then they are going to save lives. That's why we need them. No, we need education in general. But at the same time, right now, we don't have midwives who have graduated in the past two years, by the way. We don't yeah. have doctors who have graduated in this year. We don't have nurses. By the way, this is a country that is that has been at war for the past four decades, has been at war for the active war for the past two decades, and doesn't have a lot of uh, healthcare infrastructure. So right now, that moment of breathing that we have is not even put to use. So you don't have all of that. But then at the same time, you don't have political representatives, so you don't know what half of your population is thinking in reality. Yeah. 
then you come to economics. So if there is no doctor who is going to see your patients in your country, people are going to flee to Iran or Pakistan. And how does that help us? That helps us in a way that we are losing our businesses, including healthcare, education, or anything of that sort. All these countries where if they're seeking healthcare, they're going to go and pay for that in another country. So you're losing all that business too. And most importantly, if uh, and many of the fathers that love their daughters wouldn't want to stay in the country. So they would move to another country and they would consider that. And if a father is moving, so he's going to work in that country. He's going to pay taxes in that country. And you lose all this brain uh, power and you become a country with like brain drain, you know. So um, if you're not going to make it easy for families to exist in Afghanistan, uh, people are going to choose your family over you, you know. And that's the reality. In Taliban's mind, it's like they think only men is the family and they matter. But for a lot of people... Their daughters matter. Their sisters matter. Um, I can give you a very small example. A uh, hundred girls every day attend school at Kandar, which is like right now being vilified and everything. Um, mm. Hundred girls mean a hundred fathers, a hundred mothers, possibly like three hundred brothers, because even in on average, Afghan families are big. So all of that, all of them know that they're going and they want to do this. And if that was not a possibility, I'm pretty sure they would have moved or they would have sent their daughter away. So you have to understand all of those things. It's not just healthcare. It's not, oh, we have to save lives. It's economics, it's business, it's taxes. And it's, for God's sake, it's your own citizen that you're alienating in the process. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit in, in terms of, of safety as well, because I remember around about two years ago, I, I spoke to you um, and, for example, you couldn't tell me where you were because, you know, fears of your your own safety. And that is still a reality for a lot of educators, especially in Learn Afghan, which you, you founded. Um, there are a lot of people who fight against, I think is the right word, this uh, legislation uh, and do want to send their daughters to get an education. And, and, and those women also want to go and get an education. So so how dangerous is it, not just for those for those fathers, for those mothers, uh, for, for the, the women themselves, but for educators as well in Afghanistan? How much danger do, do they face of being found out basically by the Taliban? I mean, look at the number of activists missing in Afghanistan right now and their main activities. What they did was like, oh, they were education activists. They were educators. Um, Even the world doesn't, and the UN, by the way, doesn't recognize our educational crisis as a humanitarian crisis or a human rights abuse crisis. Um, They still think it's an infrastructural issue or a political issue, but it is political and human rights uh, abuse issue. Um, The activists that are missing in Afghanistan, Visa, uh, a lot of other activists that have been gone missing in the past two uh, years are because of the, the, their affiliation with schools, with secret schools, with educational policies, with advocating for education. That's the only reason. So, A, it has to be recognized. B, um, that's the reason people are going missing. Our own school, we had to change it like seven times just because people thought or our teachers thought that they were being surveilled when whenever they left the vicinity so everybody's scared everybody's scared but it doesn't mean that they have to stop it they will navigate around it or through it um, but it, they won't stop at it you know you mentioned it slightly there about the united nations and their stance on this do you think that the international community well i think i know the answer to this but do you think they're doing enough here to condemn what the taliban are putting in place 
I, I think it's less about condemning. It's more about like what they can do and yeah. what they show that they do. You know, yeah. uh, um, every time somebody goes missing or every time there is a ban, the first day, all these people from the U.S. State Department to Amina Muhammad to the U.N. to anyone and everyone post this big tweet. Oh, we're sorry this is happening in Afghanistan and we feel bad for it. We hope it's reversed and everything. And then the second day, there is some news about it and the third day, nothing. People move on. The international community has moved on. Um, if they had uh, been serious about Afghanistan, first of all, I personally do think that the international community doesn't care about Afghanistan. For them, we are a, po a poverty poem project where the less fed we are, the more uh, poor we are, the less educated we are, the more jobs we generate for them in humanitarian industry for them to feed us and for them to take care of us and for them to raise funds on our behalf. But on the other hand, at the same time, if we look at the reality of what they can do, they can sanction uh, the Taliban leaders who are doing this, mm. can stop their families from having access to all the luxuries in the world, in the Middle East and in South Asia, in countries that they are. They can also stop their families from accessing all the money that they have accumulated over the course of these years. So, why, A, you're not sanctioning their bank accounts, you're not sanctioning their travel. They're not sanctioning their families. Their families are traveling. Their families are getting educated. Their families have access to all the money that they want. So are they really in this conflict with the Taliban? Because from what I see is just now, just the right-wing party from Norway went to Afghanistan and met with the Taliban. Um, yeah. And they were okay with it. They were smiling and taking pictures. The UN has taken pictures. Amina Muhammad went on to say that the Taliban are willing to talk about stuff. But at the same time, I was like, okay, lose your passport, go to Afghanistan, all with your grandchildren, then we'll talk. Right now, we cannot talk. We're not in the same shoes. They think if Taliban are talking to women, that's good enough. They're talking to you. When they talk to an Afghan woman, they won't have the same sort of personality that you see. So... Yeah, no, I, I have a lot of conflict when it comes to the community, yeah. And, and then j just just finally, uh, from when I spoke to you last to, to speaking to you now and to seeing, you know, all of the interviews and, and the talks and, and the things that you've written about, one thing that I really get from you is that you hold on to this this burning hope, this hope that, you know, things will get better and, and, and things will change. I guess you have to hold on to that feeling. Otherwise, what else have you got, right? Yeah, yeah. What else have I got? That's the reality. I'm studying education because I want to go back to Afghanistan and work on that. Um, I hope that there is a day where we don't need more NGOs like LEARN or the UN to help us rescue Afghanistan. But I also personally believe that no more rescuing, you know, we don't need to be rescued. We just need to build our future. So for me, um, I will always hope. I'm a hopeless uh, optimist when it comes to Afghanistan. I believe in an Afghanistan in my head, actually, that is much better than what we see right now. And it has been better in the past. So I would definitely believe in that. But then at the same time, when time comes, um, right now we're in this preparing mode. When time comes... We wouldn't need the world to come and rescue us, to weaponize us. Oh, we need to save Afghan women. That time, we'll have our own people who will be educated enough to do that. Even if it's in secret right now, even if it's illegal right now, you have to hold on to it. I mean, what else have we got in this tiny world, you know? Pashtana, thanks so much for, for talking to me and giving me some of your time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
Listeners, we've got well over a thousand other conversations just like this on The Bunker. And the best news is, is that we make a new one every day. We're normal people doing our best to make extraordinary podcasts. So if you enjoy what we do and want more, why not back us on Patreon? Just £3 a month will help keep us going for another thousand episodes. For that, you'll get access to some pretty sweet merch and a chance to listen to our episodes ad-free before everyone else. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. Bunker Global was written and presented by Chris Jones. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production. <laughs>